Welcome to the Senior Story Hour, where we share poems, stories, observations of life, written by the Franklin Senior Center Writers Group. Steve Sherlock here in the studio with the Senior Scribblers for another recording session this month. We are marching forward and having fun doing so. You'll hear a variety of voices of a variety of us uh, reading a variety of things. We're all in step. We're all in step, yes. Misstep. But, but not lockstep. <laughs> there may be a misstep or two, and we'll laugh at that because that's what we do, too. We like to have some fun while we do things. So today, one of the things I think I'll do is I'll be a little different, and I'll start. Because i got a short thing, and because it's spring, we're marching forward, and baseball will actually happen. I've got a short poem that I had done in memory of my father um, because he taught me how to do a scorecard. So, the scorecard. It's my father's fault. Answers to math questions in an instant, cost accountant, meticulous rows of figures, kept score for the family card games, columns of names and numbers tallied for the winners and players, diabetic diary, daily, di daily food intake, peanut butter toast, mashed potatoes, a dog-eared book, calories for each item. So I'm at the festival, scribbling who wrote, who spoke in order, what poem was read. Yes, my archive can go back to 2004, 2002 even, with words, images, scenes called forth, and the festivals come alive. Early morning, roomy, Bly on the mound, barks at back, Paul Winter on deck, the pitch, and it's a home run. <laughs> <laughs> that should get us started. Yeah, a little should. spring fling. Yeah. It is spring. Baseball's coming. Baseball's in. here. I'm going to change sports. You're going to change sports? We can do that. Okay, because we're not finished tournaments for hockey. This is why hockey is good for you why and hockey? the family. My family is made up of Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives, carnivores and vegetarians, plus a United Nations panel of a mixed descendants from vastly different countries. The ethnic jokes heard around the dinner table would make the politically correct blush. <laughs> However, we all wear black and yellow, Bruins shirts. All of us love hockey. The Boston Bruins and the Providence tickets are sure gift pleasers. There is little on television that is safe for children to watch, and parents can only watch cartoons for so long. How many princesses can you name? But sports are a family activity. Hockey, I propose, is good for the family. In the first place, hockey is like life. The summer is off-season. That's just natural. Our bodies are geared for rest and relaxation during the hot months. Then fall comes and we get antsy. School starts and so do sports. We start looking forward to winter, snow, and hockey. The game itself is like life. Some say it's too violent, but out of all the sports my children played, hockey had the least injuries. We've had painful shin splints from soccer, wrenched backs from field hockey, and sprained ankles from gymnastics, cross-country running, baseball, and softball. 
It seems that the sports with the least protective equipment have the most injuries, and hockey players wear a lot of protective equipment. There are lessons to be learned in hockey that prepare you for life. Dedication is the most obvious one to me. Since youth hockey players can't drive, the parents have to cart their hockey players to practices and games, like we did this weekend to Franklin Youth Hockey Tournament in Waterville, New Hampshire, three hours one way. Besides, ice time isn't easy to get. That's why some practices are also far away, really far away, and in the middle of the night. And let me tell you, driving in the middle of the night to go to hockey practice miles away offers prime one-on-one -on -one time between parent and child. So it's a virtual lesson in love and sacrifice. If you ever wondered why do parents do this, that's why. And I haven't mentioned cost yet. Hockey is one of the most expensive sports my children were ever involved in. The children know this and actively participate in equipment swaps. They learn the value of money and name brands and flashy cheap material and apparatus. Plus, they learn how to take care of their stuff and what will happen if they don't. Because you can't skate on rusty blades and no one wants to smell a stinky hockey bag or put on a wet uniform and helmet because you didn't take it out and dry it and wash it. The game itself is a fast lesson on life. Emotions change quickly. Anger can flare up. Hopes can be dashed. Disappointment, that's a sure bet, just like life. Work is a given. Team playing is like marriage, give and take share and lead, step back, encourage, etc. In order to score, everyone has to do their share. You can't blame the goalie. He's to be protected. There's a lot to play in the game. You have to learn to forgive and forget. Move on. Tomorrow will be better. Life like hockey can be long or short. The playing time is three hours, but the clock stops but icings, offsides, and penalties, so you can't plan exactly. That's official game time, three hours. The best times in hockey are family games on homemade ice rinks or local ponds. A backyard ice rink is a prime allegory for love. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love you enough to shovel snow off a measured rectangle for our backyard rink. I love you enough to buy some sort of top material and wood planks to form a rink. I love you enough to use precious water to fill it. I love you enough to do it again when the water leaks out. I love you enough to do it again when the temperature melts the ice. I love you enough to be a human Zamboni. I love you enough to regularly go out and face the elements and resurface the ice in the rink. Isn't it obvious that we love you? Thus, hockey allows parents the opportunity to show their love to their hockey families. You can see it on their faces when everybody's outside skating together, or all together at the rink rooting for their hockey player. All right. Very good. Yeah. Nicely done. Nicely done, yeah. 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 I can read mine. Go for it, Bill. I have a spring one. That fits the theme, absolutely. I had to, I had to come, come up with something new, so I did. This is... A, I wasn't sure about the title. I called it A Beautiful Morn. Spring flowers on this beautiful day. The crocus pop out 
of the ground today. The leaves piled high, but here they are. Beautiful purple colors, the best by far. I take my photos, capture the beauty. I feel it is my duty. I see them at the senior center last week. I see them by the railroad bridge in town. I take a peek. Tired of the wind, tired of the snow, tired of the rain, spring weather will show. The warm weather will come, hope it will stay. I feel so happy in every way. I look forward to the beautiful warm sun. As it shines on my body, the day has begun. So come on, spring, bring it on. A beautiful sunrise on a beautiful morn. Very nice, Bill. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's lovely. That uh, yeah. sun on the body, that was yeah, that, good, the sun good shining in, in the window when I'm in, in bed. <laughs> yeah. Does your good. That, it does your good. Do you want me to go now? Sure, you can go next, Alice. Okay. This is a story that um, I have added to, so I'm sure you will um, recognize the beginning. Murder is untidy. Detective Jim Hollander surveyed the room where an older woman lay dead in front of him. Whoa, is this what they call hoarding, he asked himself. Piles of newspaper were surrounding him. Empty bottles were in cotton boxes, and an army uniform on a coat hanger hung in full view on a door. It was faded and Hollander surmised was not from a recent conflict. Paths had been made from the kitchen to the dining room bed and bathrooms to a sunroom packed with magazines. The medical examiner, Sammy Tolan, was hovering over the body while her assistant took took pictures. What have you got, Hollander asked. Can you believe this, Sergeant? Sam O'Rourke, notebook in hand, came over to his superior. It looks like an accident, however. Her name is Susan Wright, 75 years old. Her daughter's over there. Hollander looked over to see a petite, shapely young woman in her 30s wiping tears from her eyes while one of his guys was writing notes. Hollander leaned over the body. Was Wright ill? She looks very frail. O'Rourke studied his notes. The doctor said the mother had a bad cold. She comes over every evening just to make sure her mother has dinner. That's how she found the body. It looks like the old lady tripped on the cord of the TV that was on the pile of newspapers, and the TV hit her on the head. That's a big cut, Hollander bent down closely. It's a nasty one, but is it enough to kill her? O'Rourke sighed. Not everything is a homicide, Jim. This was an accident waiting to happen. Look at the height of those newspapers and magazines. Look over there, the army uniform. The daughter says her father passed five years ago, and the father was in the army for a year as a clerical worker. No distinguished medals or anything. Hollander looked at the path someone, probably the daughter, had made so her mother could get to the kitchen, bathroom, bedroom. He shook his head and moved toward where the daughter sat. 
tell the med medical examiner I want an autopsy, just to be sure it was an accident, Hollander ordered his subordinate. Hollander's six foot four inch bulky frame was hard to ignore as he strode up to where his contemporary was talking with the victim's daughter. The man faded into the background as Hollander introduced himself and extended his condolences to the victim's daughter. How long was your mother a hoarder, he asked. Margie Wright looked up at the de detective, wiping away her tears. Don't be condescending, Sergeant. Detective Jim Hollander, and forgive me if I came off that way. I didn't mean anything by it. But it does look like your mother's hoarding caused her death. Was she always this way, collecting things like newspaper and magazines? Not always. When my father died, my mother retreated into her own world. But somehow, when my father died, mom blamed herself for his actions because he was, he was really kind of an odd type and thought if she had done things differently, my dad wouldn't have been the way he was. Margie Wright shook her head and started weeping softly. Hollander nodded to O'Rourke standing nearby. Sergeant O'Rourke will drive you home. If you could leave your telephone number with him, we'll be in touch. The detective thought for a moment. Are you an only child? No, my brother is in Europe in business. I'll have to contact him when I get home. Give my sergeant his name and telephone number as well and where we can reach him. To Margie Wright's question about releasing the body, Hollander told her that they would be doing an autopsy. The daughter looked alarmed, but you said it was an accident. I often warned, I often warned her about living this way. There could be a fire or something. The girl's words faded out as she started crying again. It's only routine, I'm sure, the detective attempted to assure her. As the daughter retreated, he moved over to his top man. Give me a background check on the daughter, son, and the victim. My arches are bothering me. Everyone on the detective's team knew about Hollander's feet, although embarrassed to tell anyone outside their department. He had an uncanny belief that held true in every one of his cases. And when Hollander's arches hurt, it always turned out to be murder. Hollander came in early the next day. He liked getting in before the other guys. He immediately made coffee in his coffee pot he kept in his office. There was another one that his staff used in the outer office, but whoever made it didn't know how to do it. There was an art to making the perfect cup, using expensive coffee beans, grinding them, and then enjoying every sip. He did that now. Once poured, he sat in the office chair and savored every gulp. When O'Rourke came through the door, Hollander called him into his office. 
What time is the right daughter coming in? The sergeant looked at his notes. She called and asked if she could come in with her brother when he gets home around four this afternoon. Is that okay? Sure, I'm going over to the victim's apartment, but I'll be back. If not, give them coffee, let Rocky start the interview with the women. Woman, you take the son. Hollander grabbed his coat and left. Once in the car, Hollander put on a classical CD and maneuvered downtown traffic. Always a challenge at this time of day. Hollander estimated there must be 50 apartments in the brick building the victim had her apartment. The detective decided to use the stairs. He felt a little chunky today. Once at the victim's door, he heard someone inside. He went under the crime scene tape and listened again. Were his ears deceiving him? No, it was very little no noise, but it was inside. Being as quiet as he could, he turned the key to the apartment. The person with her back to him across the room was so intent on what they were searching for, they jumped when Hollander asked, what the hell are you doing in here? It's a crime scene. He ran over to where the figures still had their back to him. They were probably praying they'd become invisible, but no such luck. Hollander grabbed the intruder's hoodie and turned them around. He was shocked to find the interloper had gray permed hair and bifocals. She must have been five feet or less, and Hollander's frame shadowed hers. What are you doing here? He asked again. The woman looked scared as if she might burst into tears any moment. So the detective became soft-spoken. Spoken. Didn't you see the crime tape? Weren't you home yesterday when we were called to this apartment? Do you live in the building? The woman's bravado came back. You scared me half to death. Here, let me sit down and I'll tell you what you want to know. Hollander led the woman to the nearest chair. She caressed the fabric she was sitting on. I always loved this chair and told Susan, if she ever grew tired of it, I would buy it from her. Miss Hollander waited. Oh, you want to know who I am? That would help. And also, what are you doing here? Elsie Smith is my name. I live across the way. I saw the commotion yesterday and was very sad to hear of Susan's device, but she had some things of mine, and I really must have them back. Hollander sat down. His arches were agony now. This is a crime scene, Mrs. Smith. He had noticed her wedding ring and, and deemed her a widow. Nothing can be taken out when it's a crime scene. I'm sure you can understand that. If you tell me what things Susan borrowed and did not return, then when the case is settled, I'll make sure you get them back. But I need them now, Smith said. That isn't possible. Hollander tried another tactic. Were you a good friend of Susan, right? Susan, in lots of ways, was a recluse. 
but I kept being friendly and we did eventually become friends. I am lonely since my husband died and people aren't very friendly around here. So I figured Susan was about the same age. She also was a widow. So I kept inviting her over to my apartment or I visited with her. The hoarding didn't bother you. I understood. Besides, Susan said the most of the stuff was from her husband's mother who had died and she was still trying to sort through it. Really, I got the impression it was hers. What were the things she borrowed from you? I'm surprised with all the junk. Weren't you afraid that you wouldn't get your things back? That she wouldn't be able to find them for you? Apparently, Smith didn't think so and voiced her thoughts to all of them. The detective asked again, what Smith had loaned to write that she needed back so quickly. I'd like to write it down and make sure when the time comes that the items are returned to you. The woman thought for a moment. It's a tea set that Susan admired and she was having her son and daughter over to visit and she wanted to show them the set. It's fine Bavarian china which I bought when I was living in Germany for a couple of years with my husband who worked for our government in, but stationed in Europe. It was a delightful two years and I really bought up a lot of Bavarian china at that time. Susan took a fancy to this one particular set and asked if she could show it to her children. It had the cup, creamer and teapot, lovely. Simply lovely. The woman appeared to be in a trance, recalling better days. She was actually smiling. A glance at his watch told Hollander he better wrap it up. He rose and extended his hand to Smith. She rose rather reluctantly. Please do not come in here again, he warned. You said you had a key. The detective asked for it. I don't have a key, was her answer. You let yourself in with it, so I know you have it on your person. The woman searched a pocket in her house dress and gave it to Hollander. I'll walk you back to your apartment, he offered. She took one last look around and left with the officer. Once she was safely in her apartment, he waited outside for a few minutes unsure that she might return to the crime scene. Time was getting short. He had to be back at the station. Besides, he had her key, so Hollander felt sure she would not wander back across the hall. Anyway, he had to look over his notes from this morning's visit with Elsie Smith. His archers told him this woman would prove an important part of this case. Hollander grew annoyed at how long the traffic interfered with his getting back to the office. Once there, he went into where Rocky was doing the interview with the daughter. He quietly sat down, letting his co-worker do the interview. Rocky was asking how the daughter got along with her mother. And after a while, the questions appeared to exhaust themselves. 
So Hollander talked. I know something about your grandmother. Earlier, I was at your mother's apartment and met Elsie Smith, and she filled me in. Oh, the daughter threw her hands up in the air. That strange woman, what does she know? She was always trying to come over to my mother's, was fascinated with all the boxes, and even wanted to go through my mother's stuff. She told my mother there might be something valuable. So your mother and Elsie were not great friends. Oh, goodness, no. My mother couldn't stand her and made excuses for not having her come in. Elsie was kind of weird. My mother sometimes wouldn't answer the door and just stayed extra quiet. So Elsie would think she had gone out. Why do you think Elsie was so curious? I just figured she was a lonely person looking for friends. She did tell my mother people in the other apartments didn't appear too friendly. The woman kept looking at her watch, finally saying she was having dinner guests that evening. The detective thought that strange. Her mother had just passed and she didn't cancel social engagements. He shrugged. That's enough for today, Miss Wright, but we will need to talk to you further at a later date. I hope your brother gets home soon, as you can imagine. I want to talk to him also. I still say it was an accident, an unfortunate accident. Will you release the body to me so I can make funeral arrangements? I told you before, I can't do that right away until we are satisfied about how your mother died. Hollander said. The daughter shook her head. O'Rourke had told his boss the brother was stuck in New Jersey from his trip to England and he was taking a taxi home. It was late. Hollander's arches cried out for mercy. He shut off the lights and left his office. The remainder of the week was hectic, but Hollander knew Susan Wright's son had vanished and nobody seemed to know his whereabouts. By Friday, the police put an APB out on Eric Wright, who disappeared after he had told O'Rourke he was trying to hail a cab from New Jersey to get back to New York. Whether he disappeared of his own volition or was kidnapped was up for grabs, but the detective knew that his disappearance must have something to do with his mother's murder. Yes, now Hollander was calling it murder. There were no murders other than the right one to investigate. So his archers didn't bother him unless he was working on Susan Wright's death. When this first occurred years ago, Hollander thought maybe he should go to a doctor and investigate the cause of his pain not for one minute thinking it had anything to do with the murders he investigated. But as he kept track of when his archers bothered him, it became apparent that this was some sort of phenomena that the universe had sent him to help him be a better detective. He just wished sometimes that it wasn't so painful. Hollander had sent O'Rourke to New Jersey to trace Eric Wright's steps. 
when he inquired of the taxi drivers, they remembered him, but most of the taxi drivers had gone on a short strike wanting more benefits and better pay. Only a few broke the picket line. One taxi driver said the guy the detective thought was Eric Wright had changed his mind about going home to New York, but he didn't remember where Wright wanted to go, except it was not in the direction of his home, and the taxi driver had finished his shift for the day. My feet were killing me, he explained. Boy, if he only knew, Hollander said. We're back to square one, said Hollander. He thought for a moment. Let's get a search warrant for his apartment and the sisters. Margie Wright says she hasn't heard from him, but we can't believe her at this point. Get a GPS on her car and a bug on her phone. I have the search warrant. O'Rourke nodded. Hollander's arches must be killing him. Hey, okay. good characters, uh, good dialogue. <laughs> thank you, thank As you. As usual. Introduction of an interesting phenomena, too, with the arch yeah. in the foot. Al, Lindy, you want to go next? All right. You think you're nervous? <laughs> it should be over here. <laughs> the red, yellow, and green leaves are still in our memories. They now lay on the ground, a lifeless shade of brown. In the light of the afternoon, the lifeless trees cast a long shadow on the earth. Any of the remaining leaves in the trees now fall along the ground and dance in the breeze. Many await the Ides of March, but I did not. So come and share with me. We can celebrate, for it is now spring. And one lovely, that's lovely. <laughs> Thank you. This is a shorty. I feel anxious. I want to move. I want to spread up and out. I want to feel the sun's warmth, the fresh air, and more. I want to see my friends from before. So green with envy, I await at your door. I await to feel the love I felt before. The words from a blade of grass. Oh. That's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good. Beautiful. Right. That fits in with the March and Spring kind of theme that's yeah. been threaded through this today. Well, I have a, a story, a, a cloudy story. A cloudy story. Maybe a ray of sunshine. Okay. Okay. There we go. Okay. This is uh, about an aunt of mine and a family, a, a character, a personality, and uh, my father's sister. Her, her name is Anne, but as children, we all called her Anto. But anyway, this is uh, the beginning of uh, a sad chapter in our life. Anne's life doesn't begin at 19 years of age, but it became a turning point that changed her and her family in the most dramatic way when they lost their father in an auto accident on the way to Sunday Mass in 1931 in Verna River, Prince Edward Island. This sad event led to struggles in the years that followed, the details of which I don't really know all about, and I would really like to know, except I know there there was a sad chapter. They had no breadwinner, 
with the loss of their blacksmith father, which result in the loss of their home. There was floundering around after that for a number of years. The older sons finding work and housing on local farms and Anne staying with her and, and to help and be with her mother and the younger ones throughout that period. They had a very large family. Uh, the older siblings uh, before Anne went to the Boston area to find work and opportunity. Anne was the oldest, and she took that responsibility. So like the line from a song in the play, Annie, it was a hard-lucked life. Anne loved to laugh, but didn't have much to laugh about in those days. The thing that came uh, that carried the day in those times for Anne was that she had fire in her belly, and being feisty helped her to get them through those hard times. Those years together with their mother and children sharing difficult times must have tempered her will, and the bond between mother and daughter became a lifelong union of caring. I first met my Aunt Anne when spending summers on Prince Edward Island at my grandfather's farm, John Lynn's farm, on my mother's side. My brother John and I were there and we, because we took the train into the city of Charlottetown to meet our grandmother. And uh, my Aunt Anne met us at the station and we walked to where they were now living in an apartment. This is 10 years later. Anne is now 20, 29 years of age. John and I, I was 10 and he was 11. We came through the door and Anne called up to her mother to say, Mom, look who's here. The first sight and sound of our grandmother as she came to the top of the stairs was, Oh, well, the dear, dear, dear little boys. That expression was a measure of her affectionate personality. Still looking young and pretty at, uh, for her age, but we were not to call her Grandma. It was to be called, she was to be called Nana. Living in this apartment with Anne and Mother were her two siblings, Frank and Rita. By this time, most of the family were standing up on their own, some going to Boston, and this household soon followed. Anne found work in the Boston area at St. Peter's Rectory in Dorchester for many years, and that was good for Anne. In those years of tough times, she needed God and faith. Her faith was honed at that location. It was in those times of trouble that Anne and her mother went through there where they learned to look up and, uh, for their need for grace, helping them find their way, and with Anne's tenacity, they found it. Anne even played Cupid for her mother by encouraging a family friend, Guy Freeman, who is now uh, retired and a widower, that he should visit her mother, which he did. And they became fast friends and companions, followed soon by marriage to the delight of many. Some years later, Guy passed away, and Anne and her mother located to an apartment in Brookline, where Anne continued the great care for her mother as she aged, adding many years of comfort and joy right into her mother's grand old age, uh, approaching 100. The Book of Sirach has something to say about Anne and the way she carried 
cared for her mother, that those who honor father and mother atone for sins, and those who respect their mother are like those who lay up treasure for long life. And when they pray, they're heard, and did live to be 104 years old. We, her nephews and nieces, were like her own children. Our health and welfare were of great concern to her, resulting in prayers for all of us that God heard. She became very wounded when one of her many grandchildren, uh, grand nieces and nephews, outlived, when she outlived any of us. Uh, the news was crushing to her as it would be for any mother. One of, uh, on one of those visits to the Brookline apartment before my grandmother passed away, uh, she was confined to a bed and, uh, in a sleep-like uh, coma, no longer speaking. At her bedside, talking to her without response, I gave her the blessing that I had learned I could do. As I left the room, Anto said to me somewhat sternly, I saw what you did. Thinking I may have done something wrong, I realized later she was actually glad her nephew blessed her mother, his grandmother. Anne loved to return to Prince Edward Island as often as she could after her mother died, and she was staying one year with Peggy and I for a number of days at our old schoolhouse uh, summer place. It was a wonderful time together as Peggy took her around to visit all her friends. She loved to laugh, and as they shared their memories, she had a wonderful time. On one occasion, she took an air balloon ride with us. She was in her 80s, and when we took her to a dance at a, a local variety dance, uh, the men at the local dance asked her to dance. She still had the walk and the look, and that look in her 80s, and the personality as well. So even though Anne continued to be sharp as she aged, the time came when she needed care and help in looking after her health and affairs, which uh, one of our cousins, Bill Mooney, took care of some, for some time uh, until it became impractical after he moved to Maine. Cousin Gail Hodgins then became a great advocate for Anne in those days in the way of power attorney and health proxy. To both of them, our thanks and gratitude for all they did and uh, what they were still doing in those days. As for her mind, I can only say she reached 104 and she was so aware, even in those years, that at times her sharpness would give you a scare. We love that about her being so smart and the things she remembered would give you a start. Anne's final destination was with us in the wonderful care in the Little Sisters of the Poor over in Somerville, who were there at her side and on her side. Her room was like a shrine with all her beads and pictures and religious articles. But the fire in Anne's in Anne never subsided as she was not a very good at biting her tongue, not the best patient. Bill Mooney told me once, Anne was very, not very nice to him that day. All I could say to Bill was, it was your turn. Did I mention, <laughs> did I mention feisty? You just have to learn how to bob and weave with Anne. Change the subject. I somehow could. 
Getting old is not for sissies, as the saying goes. When you lose mobility and strength, along with problems seeing and hearing, no wonder Anne could say, look at, looking at me one day, Al, I didn't ask for this. She was expressing that familiar question of why am I still here? Even though adverse, she was adverse to hospitals and procedures, there she confided to me one time there was one procedure that she consented to go through a few years ago, thinking the Lord might take her, a good way to go. I reminded her of how she shared that with me and asked her, would you like me to pray for that to our Lord for you, that you would go? Didn't get an answer of yes or no to it. Was maybe, but not yet, Lord. A woman of faith, yes. Strong in nature as well. And could also be very kind, considerate and caring. Be sure of one thing. A merciful God loves her better than we ever could because he reads hearts. What a beautiful, what a beautiful memory to leave other people in your family that didn't know Anne or may not know Anne. Yeah, well, she was well loved. You're right. Yeah, it is good. Well, Zenobia, not to put you on the spot, but if you've got something, you can have some time. Well, here I go, and thank you. Uh, this doesn't have a title. Uh, it's tentatively titled When Meatloaf Saved the Day. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm ho hoping it won't be too long, but here I go. 1956, in the ninth year of my life, everything changed. The world as I knew it would never be the same. With very little fanfare, but apparently after a time of careful planning, our little family was moving from our so-called English basement apartment with its three rooms and very big radiator to a quiet area of Chicago on the west side to a five-room second floor apartment. And though my parents made the announcement with enthusiasm, coloring it with, you will have your own room. Big deal, I thought. I felt sick with the idea of leaving everything I had known, everything that made me feel snug and safe behind for some unknown second floor in some unknown building where I pictured that behind every window on every floor, there would be blank and unfriendly faces because we would be mutual strangers, unable to adapt to each other. In my nine-year-old mind, that made perfect sense. Since 1949, when I was two years old, I depended on the familiarity of Sawyer Avenue, where everything was just around the bend. I was not good with directions. Nothing has changed even to this day. And I only knew things by landmarks. But I knew that if we emerged from our underground home, going to the right was Douglas Park, where on summer nights, mother and daddy hauled out my big tricycle and we might take a stroll and the strangeness of Chicago's nightlife. At least to me, it was nightlife. They walked and I rode not too far, one of them would remind me. And as I pedaled slowly, four or five years of age, half listening to the, their playful murmur, 
I knew it was love talk, of course, without knowing what love talk was. But I was aware of daddy's low voice, too low for me to understand what he was saying to mother and mother's seldom heard girlish giggle rising into the night air. I suppose that it was the combination of that giggling and low talk that produced a baby brother in my sixth year. By then I learned that if we turned to the right, the world opened even more. I'm sorry, if we turned to the left, the world opened even more. Our butcher shop with its sawdust floor and the counter so high I could barely see the butcher or the scales, but his hairy arms seemed long and endless when he reached to take the note my mother would send for a pound of this or a pound of that. And he always asked me how the family was doing and also thrown in that he was throwing in a little extra something or other because we were good customers. Further along on that same side was a medium sized fence where a friendly dog named Lady followed everyone who walked the length of her fence, her tail wagging, her hopeful eyes watching through the slats until she saw you to the end of the fence where she would turn around as if to say, see you next time. My first school, Victor F. Lawson, our library when I signed for my first card and everyone we knew, the place where my mother worked part-time, Consumer Shades and Blinds, where custom Venetian blinds were made in back while my mother worked in the front where, where they sold notions and sundries. I never figured out what those were, but she stood at the door and went through boxed stockings and babushkas for Mrs. Fanny Edelberg, who paid me a whole nickel if the bell rang above the door and she didn't hear it. And I would announce, we have a customer, Mrs. Edelberg, what would happen to all of this? Where was there another Rexall drugstore or a Santa like the one we had in our local Sears and Roebuck? But despite my inner turmoil, the move went without a hitch. It was a year of new things. Daddy's uh, raised at the plant, at the textile plant, afforded us a brand new, almost new Pontiac Star Chief in a gaudy brown and tan that prompted mother to say it looked as if it was always melting. We got new living room furniture that mother quickly covered with plastic that was hard to sit on. And the summer went by just like that. We had three months to get familiar with this new place. There was Franklin Park across the street of Colon Avenue and 15th. And my mother would allow me to take my three-year-old brother alone without any adults, but she could keep an eye on us from the window. We did not make many friends, but we had so much fun just hanging out together. And then the acts I had not thought about fell with sudden sharpness. You're going to your new school in a few weeks, mother said, another matter of fact thing that flowed off her tongue. And we were off to Sears to pick up supplies and plaid dresses of different hues, green, red, blue, with little collars that all look the same. The banners in the inside Sears said, first to, school, first to Sears, then to school. Those banners were everywhere in the store. And when we were done shopping, Daddy would always buy a bag of cashews, warm from wherever they cooked them. And it was part of our ritual. 
My new school, Roswell B. Mason, was four whole blocks away from our new place. And my mother, little brother in tow, walked me the first day. Watch your landmarks, my mother said. Watch out for the cars. Watch out for this. Watch out for that. And I thought, watch out for that new school. I already don't like it. It was September, but the last of summer was hanging over Chicago for dear life. And the scratchiness of my new clothes made me feel as if I was in the desert. My hair ribbons matched the green plaid I had chosen to wear that day. And everything from top to bottom, even underneath, was brand new and crispy. Welcome, Zenobia, come in, someone said. There was some, some lady that I had never seen. And the brown building seemed to say, <laughs> come in, we eat little girls who have wandered away from their own neighborhoods. I wanted to pull back and run, but my mother was oblivious and moved me forward up a long path to the out, outdoor stairs and into a room marked office. She pushed her way into a crowd of parents, all forcing their children's credentials onto weary looking office people. When this was done, each parent was given a number, a classroom assignment, and before we knew it, we were whisked into the long halls and into a room with the corresponding number. My teacher was Mistress Leckie, and she had a tight, unyielding smile that was not lost on my mother who gave her a lowered look. I was not warmly welcomed in there and sent to the back of the room because in those days we sat alphabetically and I was a Williams. I sat through a miserable hour or so of Mistress Lecky, droning on from the front, da uh, dashing her hard to pronounce name onto the blackboard with her squeaky new chalk. I did not look around the room. I kept my eyes fixed on my neatly stacked notebook, ruler, pencil. I went over and over these things in my mind, notebook, ruler, pencil, and the other things I had brought until now eager to break them open. And now I was sitting in the very back, listening to Mistress Lecky and whatever she was talking about. Then it was lunchtime. I will collect lunch money. I will collect your lunch money and line you up on the outside for cafeteria time became the voice of Mistress Lecky. My face and neck began to warm. I had no lunch money. Mother had forgotten in her haste to be there on time. I had no lunch money and the tears sprung to my eyes. I once again raged in my mind against this new and unfamiliar place where no one was likely to forget everything or anything, including lunch money, and would likely starve to death before I got home. And would I even remember how to get home with all those green lights and crossing guards and silly stop signs on the way. Mistress Lecky was bearing down on me. I could feel her. Zenobia, she said my name with a sudden sharpness. Sharpness, I could not decipher. She was standing right next to my desk and I could smell unfamiliar perfume. I could feel the other children staring at me. She was holding out her hand, waiting for that lunch money. I tried to speak, but my voice would not work and hot unwanted tears were sliding down my onto my desk. Mistress Lecky gave a slight tiss, tiss, tiss 
with her mouth. Then she cleared her throat with sympathy. It's all right if your parents don't have the money, she offered. And I was frantically shaking my head because my mouth wouldn't work. No, they have money, I wanted to say. And we have food at home. But my mother forgot. Stris Lecky droned on. I have an extra apple I brought for my lunch. And you may have it, Zenobia, she said. I pictured some shriveled out of joint apple that she was going to benevolently give to me. I kept shaking my head until the bell rang and the children whose parents had not forgotten their lunch money lined up. I thought smugly and giving me side eye. Poor thing, Zenobia, with an un unhappy name and an unhappy girl you are. When Miss S. took the line of children to the cafeteria, I sneaked out of the room and headed for the playground. At least I remembered where that was. With lunch going on, it was almost deserted, and I sat there on a swing and let my misery flow. When I was able to collect myself a little, I watched in interest as two familiar shapes approached the playground. <gasps> my mother, holding the hand of my three-year-old brother, were moving quickly in my direction. She saw me on the swing and came through a side gate to get to me. In her hand, she carried one of daddy's lunch bags and in the other, a thermos. I could not remember seeing this before, but she murmured something about forgetting my lunch, as close to an apology as some parents could muster in those days, and led me to a bench where she unwrapped the wax paper off a generous meatloaf sandwich. Yes, we had had meatloaf the night before, and its familiar aroma now involved with Miracle Whip and white bread sent me straight to heaven, and the ice cold milk in the thermos zoomed me off to another planet. She topped it off with butter cookies that I could put my fingers through the holes and wanted me to eat slowly, but not so slow as to miss the ringing of the bell. I thought of Mistress Lecky and her little apple and the way I had run out on her. I felt bad. I would explain to her after that I had been expecting my mother all along, which I wasn't. And I had no idea that Mistress Lecky would become one of my favorite teachers all the way through eighth grade. She had a severe look, but a heart of gold. <clears throat> Excuse me. When my mother and brother left, I stared after them until they were out of sight. I thought I had never loved my mother, brother, and my whole life more than I did in that moment. And leftover meatloaf had saved my life. I was sure of it. Yeah, good memoir. Yeah. That's oh, great. precious. Yeah. How precious. What a lovely memory. Yeah. We got to know the neighborhood. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So to bring the close to the day for this recording session, thank you, listeners. Thank you, writers and readers, for sharing. We've gone from sunshine to baseball to hockey, from aching feet that give us a premonition. <laughs> From the blocks, left going one way, right going the other. It's been quite a trip, and I hope we'll all come back for another journey next time around. So thank you all. And our privilege. Thanks for being with us here on Senior Story Hour. Until the next time, I'm Peter Jay. 
Remember, be they laced with gravity, levity, wisdom, or whimsy, the meaning experiences of life become a little larger when you share them, when you take a moment to commit pen to paper and just write. This is FPR, Franklin Public Radio.